0: The Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast.
1: On this episode, we learn how to restore an E type as Peter Shrubsole shares his story of the restoration of a Series 3 V12. Also, Richard West and I discuss how manufacturers drive motorsport, and Tom gives us the latest from his motorsport diary.
0: JECpodcast.com
1: hello wayne scott with you here on the jaguar enthusiast club podcast hope you're keeping well and coping with the second lockdown that's hit us here in the uk it's a difficult thing to have to be told to stay in and to give up most of the freedoms that we enjoy especially when it comes to driving our jaguars and attending our events but do it we must and we'll be here on the JEC podcast to keep you entertained and hopefully bring a bit of sanity to proceedings as we navigate our way through the latest lockdown as part of the covid 19 pandemic as it continues here in the uk i know things are different in various other countries around the world but that's the situation from where i talk to you now so stick with us here on the jaguar enthusiast club podcast we'll get you through it we'll keep you entertained and we'll keep the worldwide jaguar community in touch also of course don't forget if you are a jc member included in your membership is not only access to our fantastic forums online at jc.org. where you can get all the technical help and advice you need but also our fantastic monthly magazine which has continued unhindered by pandemics over the past few months of course jaguar enthusiast the fantastic full color a4 magazine that you get as part of your membership of the jaguar enthusiast club and it's of club matters i need to talk to you actually as we approach the 60th anniversary of one of the most iconic cars ever built and certainly one of the most iconic jaguars ever built it is of course the jaguar e-type and currently the jaguar enthusiast club are in need of a volunteer to head up our model section for e-types now this is the ideal opportunity to exercise your passion for the model and be a part of creating e-type history in 2021 as we celebrate six decades of this legendary jag if you love your e-types and if you feel you know a little bit about them and would like to volunteer some time to the jaguar enthusiast club to further our knowledge and of course add to our magazine content for e-types please get in touch now office at jc.org.uk everyone who applies is considered for the role of course and there's actually an opportunity to job share if we get a number of people applying with an interest to helping us out the possibilities are limitless it's all down to you and your enthusiasm for jaguar e-types if you want to read more about the job description you can find it on the news pages at jc.org.uk it's a minor formality don't be put off by the job description it just gives an explanation of what the job role might entail and if you have just a little bit of time but a lot of passion for jaguar e-types we'd love to hear from you if you can help and don't forget right here on this very podcast you could win a jaguar xk and a five litre v8 one at that all for just a two pound raffle ticket that you can buy at jc.org.uk forward slash raffle this is of course our charity raffle draw and to be given away to one lucky winner when we do the draw at blenheim palace for the summer jaguar festival on the 16th of may next year they'll drive off with a 5 litre v8 signature edition jaguar xk with just 35,000 miles on the clock finished in italian racing red it's lovely and all the profits from our raffle as usual going to charity this year towards the haemophilia society who of course we've heard from on this very podcast in previous episodes don't forget then get your tickets now just two pounds online at jc.org.uk forward slash raffle and it could be you a podcast listener who could be winning that jaguar xk get online now get your raffle tickets and support the haemophilia society the uk-wide charity for those affected by genetic bleeding disorders
0: memories of motorsport richard remembers on the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast on
1: the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast now we're once again going down memory lane and talking to richard west about his memories from a lifetime in motorsport now there's an old phrase coined in motorsport that you win on sunday and sell on monday but how does motorsport and the production of road cars go hand in hand well richard you came across this many times in motorsport and within your career so explain how the relationship works
2: yeah it's interesting it, 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 in any formula whether it's a sports car racing formula one what you're really looking for or what the manufacturer is looking for is predominantly there are two things there's obviously the success of winning but equally what the public don't really see is the drive that goes on between the manufacturer and the team and the number of physical staff that go through a program by a manufacturer again you know if i go back to the 80s when i first joined williams williams were honda powered and in those days it was the v6 one and a half liter twin turbo engine And although there were regular faces in the paddock from the Honda personnel, I remember by about race five that season, I, I spoke to Patrick Head and I said, you know, I keep seeing all these different guys. What's the story? And he said, oh, what's happening is he said from the production teams in Honda in Japan, certain people are seconded, he said, they can come from many different departments some come from trim some come from design some come from electronics some come from mechanical engineering and they're inserted as a horrible expression but they're inserted into the program for a short period maybe only three months sometimes six months and the purpose of that is a to understand how the involvement of that manufacturer is working with an independent organization because the manufacturers of automobiles obviously supply uh, rely excuse me very heavily on the supply chain so what is it that you need to do to understand that relationship between the supplier and the actual engine manufacturer or, or the car manufacturer and secondly and this was very important and still is because formula one and sports car racing and even touring cars and rallying operates at such a fast development pace these people are put through the programs in order to make them aware of the need for continuous improvement and rapid response time. You know I've seen situations in my Formula One career Williams for example where we had a number of manifold exhaust manifold failures at, uh, at a Grand Prix and on the Saturday afternoon that part, failed parts, were put on an aircraft and flown back to the factory. Fresh manifolds were fitted for Sunday The staff in the factory on Sunday were evaluating why the manifolds had failed. They were manufacturing a modified manifold system by Monday evening, straight Tuesday morning, and on the Thursday afternoon, those manifolds were on a test car going round and round Silverstone. Well, there's not many motor manufacturers who have that ability to move things that fast, so what they do is they expose their staff on a rotational basis to the practices of a Formula One team and the need for speed in terms of design, manufacturing and thought processes. And then they reintroduce those individuals back into the company to take those ideas with them as food for thought and points for discussion of how to make the road car product better.
1: And it's a great proving ground for new technologies, isn't it? And over the years, so many new developments in the motor car have started on the racetrack and jaguar in particular very very forward thinking in the early days of their forays at le mans into disc brakes and uh, the stories mm. of norman Jewiss testing those on the mealy mealy with sterling moss fantastic stories and that was how mm. new technology was broken but even as modern as the Audis of the early 2000s that brought led lights to le mans for the first time that's still very much a part of pushing the motor car and its technology forward isn't it
2: yeah, very much so. And, and I think if you look at all the motor manufacturers that have been through various forms of motor racing, whilst there is, of course, an incredibly high marketing value. I, I read somewhere recently that Mercedes value the exposure that they get from being so successful currently in F1 at over $3 billion a year globally, which is a staggering sum of you know money in terms of awareness of their product and their success. I've never ever seen a calculation of just how much it contributes back in terms of that technology but the thing that is so, if you if you look at, you know, Williams have been in the news recently obviously because they've changed hands now, they're in new ownership but when Williams Engineering, Advanced Engineering was formed It was able to do things, for example, build that fantastic, you know, supercar for Jaguar, the design concept that was put through in a very short space of time, because what it actually does is it takes ideas and it takes processes and it puts those into the minds of the young design teams, the men and women who are responsible for that product So effectively. It removes limits of thought. You know, previously, I, I, somebody said a while ago on one of the interviews you did on the podcast, the problem was with E-Type when it first came out, various departments actually built it, but it was only, I think, seven to ten days before somebody was given it and said, put an exhaust system on that thing. Mm. Well, that would obviously never, ever happen in a competition position because what you're doing is you're constantly looking for an integration of those departments to actually make the whole product better as a result of those learning experiences that you pick up through the high speed world of motorsport
1: do you think the way that formula one runs now i mean you mentioned mercedes and they're a very good example of that almost old-fashioned relationship between manufacturer and race team but In the days of Formula One now, where there isn't such a direct or obvious, perhaps, link between a manufacturer and the F1 team, do you think some of that's been lost? And in in certain senses, do you think some of the point of winning has been lost?
2: I think it's it's, it's not the public. I don't think the public perceive it as the testing ground that they perhaps did in the 80s and 90s. Um, Really, towards the end of the 90s and the start of the new millennium, there was an enormous surge in commercial interest in Formula One. And quite clearly, you know, if you look back at it, the amount of sponsors and some of the teams, the companies they had involved, the commercial messages almost overtook the technical message, uh, much to the disgust of the engineers and the designers in F1. But I think, you know, if you if you look back at one of the most successful, and I'm going to d- sort of dive off slightly, because I was just thinking about this when you were asking the question, One of the really good examples of a motorsport program driving road cars was the formation of Jaguar Sport back in the early TWR days because Jaguar were producing a fantastic product at the time, you know, which was going through all the metamorphosis that Jaguar was going through. But that meeting that took place that eventually spawned Jaguar Sport where the body kits and the different interiors and the engine modifications came along all of that was all spawned really out of the motorsport program and i can remember you know that the xj uh, series of saloons and the xjs going off day after day after day you know on test sessions with race engineers and people like eddie Hinckley and others who went along and paul davis and who actually took their experiences from motor racing into making those cars what were at the time highly desirable high performance road cars with a demonstrable link to the technologies of the motorsport program that jaguar were running through twr at the time
1: and of course jaguar still doing that with formula e now and the big sponsor emblazoned on the side of those jaguar formula e cars is panasonic who of course supply the batteries Mm. to the jaguar ev road cars now so it's it's still happening isn't it
2: Oh, very much so. Very much so, and I think if uh, obviously the, the teams increasingly these days play those relationships close to their chest because they're looking for more and more. If you go back, whether it's sports car racing or Formula One or Indy Car racing. If you go back to the 80s early 90s you could still make technical improvements that would result in you getting a benefit of say two three tenths of a lap you know quicker today you have to measure those advances in hundreds of a thousand or thousands of a second because The design parameters of the cars are so close and therefore the teams play things much closer to their chest. But that is a very good example where Panasonic are heavily involved in those programs. And I'm sure the supply chains increasingly as we move forward will have to do so with the emergence of the electric vehicles because there will be a greater requirement to test those things in anger
1: well there'll be lots more advances in motor vehicle technology as jaguar move towards their ever increasingly electric future it would seem and uh, also a good example of racing feeding into road cars and of course customers cars as far as tom robinson from swallows independent jaguars is concerned, is his race car which we'll hear the latest on next And, of course, he uses that race car to learn more about racing Jaguars so that he can impart knowledge onto his customers. Tom will tell us more in just a moment.
0: You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Podcast.
3: So I've just about recovered um, from Castle Coombe over the weekend and we're full steam ahead straight away prepping the car um, for Thruxton this weekend. Um, So it was uh, as we've said in the last uh, episode it was an absolute cracking weekend for us up at Castle Coombe and we ended up qualifying on pole and and winning both of the races which was just brilliant. Both were were really wet races um, so I had a lot of seat time in the wet which was great and we really managed to dial the car in. So we're going to get the car back up on the ramp, firstly make sure nothing's broken or damaged. Um, we're not aware of any issues up at um, Castle Coombe we're fairly confident we rectified the, the cooling issue um, and we obviously did the head gasket last minute and there was no further signs on that so we will just change the engine all this time and flush the cooling just to make sure there's no sort of dirt or debris in there from when we did that um, just really uh, just to err on the side of caution with that now um, we are racing with the classic touring car um, up at Fruxton this weekend so we will be joining them as of next year which will be really good for us um, and it is covered on uh, live on youtube and i believe it's actually on motors tv as well so it should be really good for you guys to be able to follow us um, online next year so we thought we would um, close the season by running in one of their actual races now one of their races um, i think it's actually um, between a sort of 80 and 90s touring car i'll be entering it's actually an open race so it's not affecting any of the regulations that we run the cars to um, and it's actually handicapped now i'm not entirely sure how that's that works with regards to the times but from what I'm aware is that your qualifying time um, will qualify you for race one and that is what your race one handicap will be based on so for example um, your grid position actually has no relevance on where you are in the actual overall standings they try to level the field as much as possible so you could actually be last on the grid um, but with your handicap time added you could be actually on pole. So it'd be interesting to run the Jag against some other cars. Um, I'm actually really looking forward to that. Obviously in our series, we're all on the same playing field. We're all building to the same regulation. So it would really be nice to gauge how the, the big old Jag performs against some of the kind of more desired race cars. So um, that is one thing I am looking forward to. Um, it is also going to be wet again. So we're going to leave the car in uh, a wet setup Um, And like I said, give it a full inspection and just change all the oils. That's all we really need to do and then fill up with fresh fuel and away we go. You're listening
0: to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk.
1: Well, this week on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast, we're going to follow the story of a fantastic E-type restoration project. Now any of you who came along to see the JEC stand at the NEC Practical Classics Restoration Show back in 2019 will have seen this car on the club stand and happy to report it's now finished. So we'll find out a little bit more about the trials and tribulations that its owner Peter Shrubsole has had along the way. Welcome to the podcast, Peter.
4: Thank you very much. Yes, it's been a, a much longer project than I anticipated, but uh, immensely satisfying.
1: As they often are, aren't they? Let's start off by giving people the background on your Jaguar history, because this was not the first car build that you'd done. In fact, you had done a Suffolk SS100 first, hadn't you?
4: I had. I had uh, prior to that, I'd had a Daimler Double Six for um uh, many, many years, almost twenty years, and uh, and enjoyed that immensely. But uh, in in retirement, I wanted a project to do, and the. The suffolk was uh just fitted the bill perfectly and um but once that was complete and I was enjoying it, um I wanted something else to do and um building the suffolk um was not a restoration other than in the mechanical parts um it 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 was much more a creation project but a restoration project and an e type I'd always hankered for. Um, so I went out on a hunt for an E Type and remarkably found one in the village in which I live, um, down in Devon. Um, uh, I was put onto this car. It had uh, been uh, under a lean-to for between four and five years. The guy couldn't remember exactly when he'd taken it off the road, but he'd um, it had been gradually deteriorating, losing a lot of automatic transmission fluid and then he hit a um uh, a sleeping policeman or a curb edge and broke um three of the four exhaust manifolds on the engine which made it sound absolutely awful and he took it off the road and just left it um and so uh it it was the model that i'd wanted having had the v12 in the double six and know what a lovely thing it is um and i felt that the the fixed head v12 was actually the the most sophisticated of the e types the most refined but it was the least expensive one to buy um at, at the opposite end of the scale of desirability in the uh, in, in the e type market to the the sort of 1961 um first editions um and that meant that the project would be affordable and i could uh, Um, afford to um, spend a reasonable budget on making it um, sound with a minimum risk of actually um, making a loss should I get to the stage of selling it, which... I don't at the moment.
1: <laughs> well, the poor car did deserve to look tired because I seem to remember you telling me that it had covered well over two hundred thousand miles when you got hold of it.
4: Yes, indeed, um, it was um, uh, certainly over uh, over two hundred and fifteen thousand miles, uh, according to the uh, uh, to the seller. He, uh, it's a seventy two car built actually in January. Uh, sorry, in December of seventy one. So, and it's a fairly early car. Um, of the series threes um, and first registered in January of 72. He'd bought it in, um, in 79 and had kept it all the way through until 2016 when I bought it. And it had worked hard. It had had a restoration, but actually it was a poor restoration as we discovered um, in the, uh, uh, after the car was stripped um and shot blast um we found areas that had uh, of corrosion that had been plated over on the inside of the car plated over again on the outside of the car leaving the rusty metal in between which had continued to corrode and just make a m- huge mess so uh, the work on the body shell was uh, w- was um drastic new floors boot floor rear wheel arches inner and outer Um, and uh, and other bits of detail but the good news was that it had had in that restoration a new bonnet and two new doors and they were absolutely fine and that made a huge difference in the uh, in the prep of the body. I I guess it sort of hailed
1: from the time when E-types went through a rough patch didn't they as a collectible car. They were not worth an awful lot of money in the early 80s and people did just that they patched and bodged them together to keep them on the road. It's hard to imagine that now but that was the case for those cars wasn't it?
4: Oh it was very much and this guy obviously um uh, enjoyed the car uh, and wanted to keep it on the road and it was corroding as E-types do. Um, uh, and this was the um, he told me it was done by a dealer and that in itself was remarkable because dealers don't normally get involved in that kind of project um, but his memory was failing so I'm, you know, I've got no documentation uh, in fact no documentation other than the V5 came with the car um, which, is, which is a shame but it was all reflected in how much uh, I paid for the car
1: Well, of course, the Series 3 V12 E-Type is a very critical car in the history of jaguar isn't it because it was just at that point where jaguar were really putting even more effort into the american market they were having to modify the cars to suit the new legislation that was coming across from america and of course it is a real lovely bit of jaguar history in the sense that it was responsible nearly for killing our norman Jewess way back in uh, the early 1970s when this car was launched it was launched with a big press video uh, publicity stunt alongside the xj13 and that was filming that publicity stunt for this very model of car that uh, norman had that incredible crash at myra that he was very lucky to climb out of wasn't it so it it has a real real place in jaguar history this model
4: yeah yes it does and and it was really the conversion i think from the e-type as a sports car to the e-type as a grand tourer um, uh, it had been, um, extended in its length to put seats in the back and also enabling an automatic gearbox with the, with the two plus two, um, uh, and the V12 engine made it a, 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 a much more, um, well, real, yes, you could get the performance from it, but it was a, a more relaxed cruiser than the, than the E-Type was. And of course, that's exactly what the Americans wanted. Um, they wanted the style um uh, the the shape the, the purists all say, oh no it's got to be the early shaped cars, but I think um as long as the car is painted in the right color um uh then the e type uh, two plus two can can look every bit as striking as the uh, as the originals.
1: Absolutely, and you did pick that colour, didn't you? Because it was originally black, and you included a colour change in this restoration project. So, how did you land on eventually painting it that lovely Jaguar Carnival pearlescent red that we see it in today?
4: Well, colour is a very careful choice that has to be made. I've never I, I had a black Morris Minor in my uh, my early days of motoring. And uh, learned then that they are never clean, even when you've just washed and polished them. Um, and I've never had a black car again. And I don't think black actually does the, uh, the E-Type um, uh, fixed head any service at all. So uh, a lot of time was spent um, in consultation with my wife, who has a much better eye for these things than I. And we chose the XGIS um, color of, of Carnival Dark. Um, uh, the classic red, uh, a solid red of the, um, uh, of E-types I felt was um, risking being corny. And I don't think it did the, um, the 2 plus 2 e- uh, any particular favours either. So this seemed to be, yes, it's a, red ed, uh, it's a red E-type, but it's not the post office or Ferrari red that um, so many are. Um, And it has worked wonderfully. I've had many, many compliments uh, uh, from people. Uh, on how well the car looks, and the the company who did the paint job and the bodywork um, uh, uh, did an exceptional job with it, uh, and it really does look wonderful. It suits it beautifully.
1: Well, you've described some of the horrors that you uncovered when you started to strip that bodywork down. Just how much of a job was it to repair those, how many new panels were needed, how did they fit, what was the journey on getting that body ready uh, for restoration?
4: well the i i would spent um uh, probably about um uh, nine or ten months actually stripping the car down um readying it and the body shell went off and it was um it was shot blast uh first and that showed up where all the horrors were um so it ended up having um both new floors um uh, uh, new outer sills, the inner sills were remarkably good and um, the boot floor, the inner w- wings at the back, and all of the uh, the rear wheel arches completely reconstructed um, the the boot floor um, there were some minor bits of work on the bulkhead, but they were really very small at the front um. And the outer lips of the rear wheel arches were also uh, um, uh, repaired and and renewed. So they had the body shell um, from the day they took it to the day I got it back. It was gone for 22 months, Um, which at times felt frustrating. But actually, I was using that time to restore all the rest of the mechanical parts Um, and um, the the well-known rear suspension assembly um, it itself is is a lot of work to get done. So I was doing that, um, engine and gearbox. The engine um, had been replaced uh, at the 1980s rebuild, and uh, I was told it had only done about 45,000 miles. We did get it going and it, the oil pressure was good and there were no nasty noises uh, from it. So that's the one bit that's not had a major rebuild uh, other than the cosmetics and and, and, uh, and the obvious changes. But um, all the rest has been um, thoroughly uh, restored at home. And um, just looking again, even this morning, through some of the photos of before and after, um, uh, When uh, all the suspension parts thick with rust and uh, were um, cleaned up, repainted and new bushes and bearings and so on, takes a long time. So Mm. there were still a few bits that needed to be done after the body shell came back. So that 22 months uh, actually turned out to be uh, to be right.
1: Of course, the things that make the E-Type such a beautiful car and a car that we all aspire to own are also the things that make it a real pain to restore, actually, isn't it? Especially those curves on the bodywork. It just makes it quite complicated.
4: Well, uh, yes, it does. And um, the the work that um, uh, TNT Coachworks did in getting the uh, the panel gaps, which again, notorious on the E-Types, um, uh, almost as bad as the early Range Rovers, um, which they reckon were the only thing that you could see from space other than the Great Wall of China with the, with the door gaps on a the uh, first Range Rovers.
1: Well, you don't have to open the door to get in and out of them, you see. That's the whole thing, yeah.
4: Quite. <laughs> uh, um, but they took a lot of care in getting the door panel gaps right and, uh, and, and the bonnet to the car. And the, the final profiling um it has been done ec- exceptionally well and um and a super paint job on the top really does show off um, the lovely curves um on the car uh on the series 3 you've got those lips on the wheel arches both front and rear which um uh, and the um, the wider stance and wider tyres make it look a um, a a much more planted motor car and uh, and the reflections that you get in these uh, these pearlescence paints just uh, really does it justice
1: when undergoing a restoration cars get gently customised uh for their intended use once they're finished and you've customised yours a little way in that you've added a tremec five-speed box to the car haven't you so what was the decision making process in that
4: the model of car um as i said was the least popular in the in the e-type range in the in the e-type market as it now is um the car didn't have the original engine in it um and so it was never going to be a matching numbers car, um, and um, I felt the auto, the automatic um, was uh, yes it suited it suited the cruise, but I, I I really wanted to to make it a manual car, so. And with the gearbox in, in a poor state anyway, um, the local garage told me that they were putting a litre of ATF in it uh, every week um, <laughs> before it went off the road. So that was going to take a major rebuild anyway. Um, the Tremec box has a, a, an extremely good reputation and um, a, a company in Stoke-on-Trent provided the complete conversion kit that they had developed for um, the V12 E-Type which um changed the fifth gear to um a point 8 overdrive instead of the point 64 which it has in a mustang which is the original uh, um usage of that particular gearbox um the kit came with everything that was needed so it wasn't just the gearbox but it was the gear um uh, the gear knob the gear stick the gaiter uh, the clutch the flywheel the bolts for the flywheel um uh, the, the cover um, for inside of the car the clutch pedal the, even the adapter plate for the brake pedal um, to change it from a two foot brake pedal to a one foot brake pedal and all the parts to convert the pedal box to, um, uh, to brake and clutch mas- uh, clutch master cylinder, slave cylinder everything that was needed was all in that one kit and it was really very good indeed that, that also saved um, i reckon a good hundredweight um mm. in the car because it's an alloy box um which is easily picked up by one person whereas um two people would struggle with the auto box and this great cast iron lump
1: i mean we know e-types are pretty well serviced with parts in the aftermarket but were there any particular challenges in sourcing certain parts what parts were they and how did you overcome that
4: problem well, there's one nice little story. There's um, under the under the dashboard. Um, there's hot air ducts um, which come from the heater, and there are some um, big rubber elbows um, in there that take the hot air through to the car. And one of those, um, I tried everywhere and was unavailable. And uh, so, um, uh, talking to a good friend uh, who has also retired, has got himself into three D printing decided this would be a lovely challenge and he produced um a 3d printed mold um uh, for that elbow and then cast them in silicon rubber um and so uh he created a part which was no longer available and it fits beautifully and does the job so they were the nice uh, the nice things to do and i've made a few parts as well myself um um uh, one of the small parts in the carburetor um is uh is not readily available and um so i've i produced it and m- made it myself and um that that sort of thing is satisfying too
1: well i know when you're restoring a car it often throws up little stories of its previous life along the way and i know this car threw up a few horrors tell us about the handbrake in particular it was a little bit scary wasn't it <laughs>
4: Oh yes, it was. I discovered that um, instead of a proper clevis pin um, uh, attaching the handbrake cable to the handbrake lever, it was um, just wrapped with um, uh, w- with some binding uh, binding wire. So I think a good tu- a good tug on the handbrake would have uh, just completely disconnected it. Um, um, uh, the, the the funniest one, though, I think, was that the. Uh, on the interior trim in the uh, the B-post, there is um, a a speaker for the radio and there's um, a speaker grill uh, attached to the trim and the four screws that went through to hold that speaker grill in place actually went through the diaphragm of the speaker. So the sound sound quality must have been dreadful.
1: (laughs) And I know you had some resident rodents that you had to evict as well, didn't you, along the way? Yeah,
4: yeah. (laughs) Yes, three nests were found in the car, <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, so they'd, they'd obviously found some cosy places um, um, uh, down, buried in the footwell and behind the uh, behind the centre console. Um, when when they all came out, um, these these little balls of uh, of cottony fluff and bits of this and that were um, were all found. But I didn't find anything on the car that had actually been chewed. Um uh but yes, they the it, it had clearly bred several uh, families of, of mice <laughs> over, <laughs> over its duration under the uh, the lean team
1: amazing well after all of that journey of restoration uh, you neared completion and then like so many of us were taken aback when the world changed earlier this year as the covid19 pandemic struck so yeah talk us through just those last moments of the restoration and did
4: you manage to get it moted in time uh yes i did and um, after the restoration show um, the, 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 immediately afterwards the guys at Swallow had their open day and uh, they've been so generous in helping getting the car to and from the show um, that it stayed there for a couple of weeks um, uh, to be part of their uh, of their open day and once the car was back it, uh, it, at that stage it was only pushable so uh, then it was all hands to the pump to get the car um, actually drivable and uh, uh get it completed and that was done the car was ready for an mot uh which i um which i got two days before the lockdown so here i had a car that was uh what was legal on the road i'd driven it to and from the mot station um and now we were all being locked in I, it had no trim at that stage it had the seats in and the seat belts of course um uh, and so those seats came back out again and the, uh, the early part of the uh, of the lockdown was spent doing the doing the interior um and again they faced some interesting challenges um uh, the car had never had a roof cloth in it when i bought it it was just bare metal so, um, my wife and I, um, bonded in the, um, the, the new roof lining kit. Um, and then I spent the time putting all the trim in sound deadening, um, uh, and the normal sound absorbing, uh, materials that get insulation materials and the carpet set uh, and BAS over in Newport did a wonderful job with, uh, providing the materials for that. And the interior really does look grand, um, a bit more customization there. Um, I had discovered um, a beautifully made walnut panel that sits over the instrument panel, the center section of the instrument panel uh, that the company in the States make. And I bought one of those. And a good friend has made an insert that goes on the top of the center console and um, has also made me a, um, a walnut um veneered piece that sits in and bas covered the center console which is normally a black plastic um finish with some um with some matching cream leather um and with the walnut in the center it really does um raise the uh, the, the the appearance uh, of, of the interior beautifully
1: lovely sounds fantastic it's nice to be able to do things like that and that's one of the joys of restoration isn't it as you go along just add in little touches that you want on the car and that sort of represent your own personality
4: yes and there there are some little bits like like that and actually making a little lever um uh hand grip for the for the handbrake rather than it just being the, cr- the chrome hand uh, uh, the chrome lever and um, the, the little shelves that go underneath the dash, instead of being edged in black, they're edged in, a, um, in a, uh, an oxblood cover, which complements the color of the car outside. Um, so it's little bits like that, which have been um, uh, enjoyable to do
1: lovely well you have a completed car at last despite lockdown and everything else that's gone on this year so what's your plans for the car going forward now is it a keeper is it a user what are you going to do with it
4: and well for the time being i'm going to keep it and enjoy it and use it and with with projects like this there are always little tweaks and adjustments that uh, that you feel you want to make um uh Getting the engine to run sweetly has been a bit of a challenge, but it's looking pretty or feeling pretty good now. Um, still not absolutely sure that the um, the geometry of the front suspension is spot on, uh, but that that can be improved. Um, and uh, but get out and enjoy it. That's what I want to do. But of course now we're locked <laughs> we're locked down again. Um, that's going to be limited but um the plan is to is to get out and use it well of course um, we have
1: the it, anniversary next year to look forward to where the e-type will be celebrating 60 years at blenheim palace or part of the summer jaguar festival so uh, we hope to see you there peter with the car
4: that's certainly uh um, on the schedule um uh, i was with a good friend part of the celebration uh, in 2011 at silverstone with with, with my uh, my good friend's um, series one uh, roadster in amongst the 800 odd that we got on track that day but I gather a thousand cars are planned at Blenheim um, and uh, I'm certainly planning to be one of those and having the car there.
1: Brilliant and if someone comes up to you at Blenheim Palace during the summer Jaguar festival and asks you what is the best tip you can give to them if they're embarking on an e-type restoration what's the one golden piece of advice that you would pass on having
4: learnt it take more photos (laughs) okay (laughs) i've got i took hundreds anyway but i didn't have a reference car um uh, near to hand and um with it taking so long you know there were times in Putting something back together again—it really was a. Game. <laughs> how should this go? <laughs> and um, uh, uh, the the photos that I did take were invaluable, uh, but I just wish I'd taken more. That's
1: a great tip, and we look forward to seeing the car. If you want to have a sneaky peek at what Peter's car looks like and how it's turned out go and have a look at the jaguar enthusiast club facebook page uh, in the coming days and weeks and you should be able to find the video that peter sent of his car up there as well if you want to go and have a look at the very car that we're talking about and we'll pop that also on the description part of this podcast episode at jcpodcast.com right underneath the audio player you'll find the video there as well so we can actually see your amazing craftsmanship peter that you've uh, shared the story with us on this episode so uh, peter thanks to join us on the jc podcast
4: oh you're very welcome
1: it's good to talk to you That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC Podcast via www.jecpodcast.com, and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the. fantastic glossy 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC.
0: This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at JECpodcast.com